We are beginning a series of sermons in which we will be preaching through the Gospel of Mark. This morning I will introduce the book as we look at its first eight verses. In these opening verses, the author first introduces to his readers Jesus, the Son of God. Then the witness, John the Baptist, introduces to his followers Jesus, the Messiah. So we are going to look at these three points this morning. One, the Gospel. Two, the Christ. In three, the witness. So let's first look at the gospel. The book of Mark starts abruptly with this verbless phrase which acts as the book's title and theme. It says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We are accustomed to the title of gospel for the first four books of the New Testament, But the term being used to describe these four narratives of the life of Jesus comes from this introductory phrase in Mark, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. The gospel genre presents the historical facts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all systematic accounts of the life and words of Jesus. These gospels present the gospel. The good news about God's work of salvation and history through the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. All the Gospels climax in the death of Christ for the salvation of His people. So much so that all four Gospels have been described as essentially passion narratives with extended prologues. In other words, the main point of all these Gospels is that Christ is dying on the cross for our sins and is raised for our justification. Most Bible scholars agree that Mark is the first gospel written. The evidence suggests that Matthew and Luke, which are both significantly longer than Mark, use the gospel of Mark as a framework for their own gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels because of how similar they are in content. In fact, over 600 of the 661 verses of Mark are found in some fashion in Matthew and Luke combined. In other words, over 90% of Mark is found in Matthew and Luke. The Gospel of John, on the other hand, introduces a lot of material not found in the Synoptic Gospels. While these three Synoptic Gospels have much in common, there are still significant differences. For one thing, unlike Matthew and Luke, you can notice already that there is no genealogy of Jesus in the book of Mark, and there is no birth narrative. But only in Mark do we learn that before beginning his ministry, Jesus was a carpenter by trade. We see that in Mark 6, verse 3. And Mark is also very different stylistically. The Gospel of Mark is much more fast-moving, vivid, and action-based than Matthew and Luke. One commentator spoke of Mark as reading much more like a series of eyewitness news briefs. The historical present tense is used in Mark more than 150 times. And so I'll look at some of the stylistic examples, especially from the first two chapters of Mark. So when I say the historical present tense, I'll give you one example. In Mark 2.17... The literal Greek would, would, would translate like this. On hearing this, Jesus says to them, lege, he says to them. It's a present tense. 
Now, if you look at it in your, in your English translation, it most likely just translates it said to them because it reads better in English. We don't use the, the historical present tense very often. So you look at the parallel passage in Matthew 9.1. So in the same regard, it's, it says, on hearing this, Jesus said, and it uses the past tense, a pen. So you see Mark in his style uses a a, a continual present tense. Moreover, the Gospel of Mark uses this word euthus, which is translated immediately 42 times, indicating the rapid movement of the next recorded event. In contrast, Matthew uses euthus only seven times, and Luke uses it only once. And many times it's not translated. So, for example, in Mark 1.10, when you read as Jesus was coming up out of the water. He saw heaven. This is after his baptism. Uh, it doesn't say it, but in the Greek, it literally is. And immediately coming out of the water, he sees uh, heaven being opened. Or Mark 1.12, we see at once, euthus, at once, the Spirit sent him into the desert. Or Mark 2.8, immediately, euthus, immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. See, Christ is all action in Mark. Think about this. Matthew famously records six lengthy teaching discourses of Jesus. So if you have a red letter edition of the Bible where it has Jesus' words in, in red letter, you look through Matthew and Luke, you'll see all kinds of red letters, relatively few in Mark. So there's six lengthy discourses of, of Jesus and Matthew, but Mark only records one of those six discourses. You, you look at the book of Mark, there is no Sermon on the, on the Mount. The only one recorded is the Olivet Discourse in which he's prophesying his second coming. And think about this. Luke records 27 parables from Jesus. Matthew records 19, while Mark records only four. Repeatedly, Mark tells us that Jesus taught without recording what it is that he taught. So in Mark 1, starting with verse 21, it says, They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Notice it tells us that he taught, and it tells us they were amazed. It doesn't tell us what he taught. Mark 2, verse 2 says, so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. But it does not tell us the word that he preached. Mark 2.13 says, a large crowd came to him, and Jesus began to teach them, but were not told what he taught. On the other hand, Mark, though it is a significantly shorter book than the other Gospels, Mark records more miracles of Jesus, he records 18 of them, than any of the other Gospels. Moreover, the coverage of the miracles in Mark are often described in a more detailed and vivid way than in the other Gospels. Now this Gospel is anonymous, in other words, nowhere in the book does it tell uh, us who the author is. But according to the overwhelmingly strong testimony of church tradition, the author of this gospel is John Mark. Like Simon Peter, he has both a Hebrew name, John, and a Latin name, Mark. This John Mark is the son of Mary, in whose home the disciples regularly gathered. You read about in Acts 12. Mark was also the cousin or nephew of Barnabas. You read about in Colossians 4.10. Many scholars suspect that when Mark seemingly, randomly 
mentions an anonymous, unclad lad who flees from the garden in Mark 14, 51 and 52, that, that Mark is actually referring to himself when he speaks of this unclad lad. This Mark joined Barnabas on his first missionary journey with the Apostle Paul, but for an unknown reason, Mark abandoned the mission in Acts 13. Because of this, Barnabas and Paul split up when Paul refused to take Mark on their second missionary journey. From Paul's letters, it is clear that he later reconciled with Mark, and while Paul was a prisoner in Rome, Mark aided him, and Paul sent him as a delegate on an important mission to Asia Minor. You read about that in Philemon 24 and Colossians 4.10. In fact, Mark is so useful to Paul that in his last letter, in 2 Timothy 4.11, he asked Timothy to bring Mark back with him to see him in Rome. As important as Mark's connection with Paul was, it was Mark's close connection with the Apostle Peter that was more significant in his writing this gospel. While writing from Rome, Peter refers to Mark figuratively as his son. You read that in 1 Peter 5.13. And according to strong church tradition, Mark's close connection with Peter is what motivated and enabled him to write this portrait of Christ, to write this gospel that we call the Gospel of Mark. So Papias, who's a bishop of Hierapolis in 140 AD, in speaking about the Gospel of Mark, he said, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered of the things said or done by the Lord. Now the early church tended to treat Matthew as the first gospel, but overwhelming textual evidence makes it pretty clear that Mark is actually the first gospel written. I'm not going to get into all the complex evidence here, but William Hendrickson says that Mark was written sometime between as early as 40 A.D. uh, to 65 A.D. with a balance of the evidence, he says, favoring the earlier part of the period. Many scholars will, will aim at about 55 A.D. being a time around which this gospel is written. The original audience of this gospel was most likely the church in Rome. It seems clear, at least, that Mark, who is a Jew, is writing to a non-Jewish audience, especially since Mark habitually translates many Semitic terms into Greek for his readers. So, for example, in, in Mark 5:41, when it says that Jesus took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, then Mark tells us this means, little girl, I say to you, get up. So he's translating that for his Gentile audience. The fact that his readers appear to mostly uh, be Gentiles suggests that one of Mark's chief pastoral purposes in writing this gospel is to encourage the Gentile church in Rome. He wants them to see Christ as our suffering servant Savior. He quotes the Lord in the key verse of Mark 10:45, where Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark wants his readers, which includes us, as we study this gospel, to understand the nature of Christian discipleship. He wants us to know what it means to follow Jesus. So that's what we're going to be focusing on throughout this series. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And the first thing to being a follower of Jesus is to know who Jesus truly is. And that's what Mark deals with, this very important issue right off the bat. So the second point we're going to look at is the Christ. 
The Gospel of Mark is not merely the memoir of another great man in history. The central question of Mark surrounds the identity of Jesus. So in Mark 8.27, Jesus asks, Who do people say that I am? Or in Mark 14.61, Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Mark writes this gospel to persuade his readers that Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah and the second person of the Trinity, which is why he begins his gospel with this title phrase, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. First of all, his name is Jesus, which is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Yahashua, or as we say, Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. The angel instructed Joseph, the one betrothed to the Virgin Mary, in Matthew 1.21, the angel said, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. In Jesus, the Savior of God's people has come, and he has come to save those who believe in him from the wrath of God that is due us for our sins. Now let's look at the two titles that Mark specifically uses to introduce Jesus to his readers. It says that he is the Christ, the Son of God. So first we're told he is the Christ. When we hear Jesus Christ, many tend to think of Christ as something like a last name. But it's not a name, it's a title. In fact, if instead of translating it Jesus Christ, we may be better off translating it, as some do, Jesus the Christ, because it's a title, not a name. The Christ, Christos in Greek, is the Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah or Meshua in Hebrew. And that those, both those literally mean the anointed one. Throughout the Old Testament, there was a prophecy about a Messiah, an anointed one who would come from God to redeem God's people. So to give just a couple of examples, Psalm 2, verse 2 says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord, and our NIV says, His anointed one. But you could say, His Messiah. Daniel 9.25 says, Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. So it's, it's a prophecy of an anointed one, this Messiah who is going to come. In the Old Testament, there are three anointed offices, prophet, priest, and king. The Messiah who would come would be the fulfillment of all these offices. Jesus is the prophet like Moses prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18. Jesus is the son of David who establishes an eternal kingdom spoken of in 2 Samuel 7. And Jesus is the great high priest who offers himself as the once for all sacrifice to atone for our sins as the book of Hebrews so aptly argues. The chief role of John the Baptist, whom we will look at more closely in a bit, is to declare that this long-awaited Messiah has finally come. And in the book of Mark, Jesus doesn't often refer to himself as Christ, but one time in Mark 9:41, he says this, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name 
because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. So though Christ does not often speak of himself as the Christ, nevertheless, Mark leaves no doubt about it that Jesus is the Christ by introducing Jesus in the very first verse of the gospel as Jesus the Christ. And then secondly, we're told he is the Son of God. This is a title actually not very frequently used in the Gospels. Jesus is called the Son of God only three other times in the book of Mark. Two times he is rightly called the Son of God by demons. You see this in Mark 3 and Mark 5. And once he's correctly identified as the Son of God by the centurion at the cross in Mark 15, verse 39. The title Son of Man is used much more often because it is what Jesus most frequently referred to himself as. In fact, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man 12 times in the Gospel of Mark. Nevertheless, in the very opening verse here in Mark, we have Jesus very directly and definitively being declared to be the Son of God. His being the Son of God points to his unique relationship to God the Father. Jesus is the second person in the Holy Trinity. He's the second in the three persons in the one Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Being the Son of God, birthed into this world by the Spirit through the Virgin Mary, Jesus is both truly and fully man and truly and fully God. There are two natures in this one person. He who is fully God from all eternity took on for himself a human nature. And throughout this gospel, it is clear that Jesus is thoroughly human. He eats, he drinks, he's hungry, he touches others and others touch him. He grieves, he's indignant, he falls asleep, he plies a trade as a carpenter, he has a family. His knowledge even seems to be limited at points in his human nature. But it is also clear from this gospel that Jesus is thoroughly divine. He is, as we see here, the Son of God. He heals diseases. He casts out demons. He causes the blind to see. He causes the deaf to hear. He cleanses lepers. He raises the dead. He has power over nature. He knows the future. He knows men's hearts. He knows perfectly circumstances around him. So there's a very important application to this point about who Jesus is. Jesus asked then, and he asks us now, Who do you say that I am? Your eternity hinges on your answer to that all-important question. Identify him as Lord and surrender your whole life to him, and you will be with him in eternity in heaven. But reject him as Lord and say he's just a great prophet, perhaps, maybe the most moral teacher of all time, and you'll find yourself cast out into an eternal hell. So repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and be saved, and then live out that confession. Jesus warns us not to call him Lord, Lord, and then not do what he says. So trust in him as Lord and follow him as your Lord. So finally, from this opening prologue of the Gospel of Mark, we want to look at The third point, the witness. The coming of Jesus was not an afterthought. 
It was not God's plan B. Throughout the Old Testament, even beginning as far back as in Genesis 3, His coming is prophesied. As Sinclair Ferguson points out, the coming of this Messiah, which is in fact the turning point of all of history, is about to take place. Not only are we told of his coming, but Mark quotes the Old Testament prophecies that tell of the coming of the one who will introduce the Messiah. Mark introduces Christ by telling us about John the Baptist, the one called and sent by God to introduce the Messiah onto the scene. Mark tells us a number of key things about John the Baptist. First, he tells us that John's ministry was foretold in the Old Testament. John the Baptist was the prophesied about forerunner of the Messiah. John comes suddenly onto the scene, but he does not come from nowhere. His birth origin is told in Luke, but Mark emphasizes his Old Testament origin. The very last book in the Old Testament prophesied that one like Elijah would come as forerunner of the Messiah. And Mark quotes here from this prophecy in Malachi 3.1, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. See, John the Baptist ushers in this age of fulfillment. Many, like the aged Simeon, were, as it says in Luke 2, working for the consolation of Israel, meaning that they were waiting for the coming of this Christ. John comes declaring, He is coming, in fact, He is here. And secondly, we're told that John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord and declared that we too are to prepare the way. If you notice this in Isaiah 40, verse 3, the next Old Testament uh, verse quoted here in Mark 1, he quotes, A voice of one calling in the desert, that voice calling in the desert is John. And John is saying, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. In other words, he prepares the way, and then he calls us to prepare the way. John prepared the way by announcing that the long-awaited Messiah has arrived, as he announces in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But in the same way, we are to prepare the way for his return by declaring this gospel of salvation and telling of his imminent return. Christ has come in humility to save his people from their sins, and he is coming again in glory, this time to judge the world. So we say, behold the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world, and this Christ is coming again. And so... Come to know Jesus Christ. Just like we need to prepare ourselves to meet our maker before we die, John is saying, prepare to meet your Messiah. Because he has arrived. The question we all must ask ourselves is this. Am I prepared for his return? Remember the parable of the servants in in Matthew 24, starting in verse 45. Jesus taught this. He said, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. That one is prepared. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. 
The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, the point of this parable is that the faithful and wise servant is prepared for the coming of his master. He came once and he's coming again in glory. So the good and faithful servant is found doing his job when his master returns. But the wicked servant is not prepared for the master's return. And so the master comes in judgment. You heard at the retreat our pastor preached from 2 Peter 3, beginning with verse 11. It's in, in the context of speaking about the second coming of Christ. And Peter says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? In other words, how can you be prepared for his coming? The answer is this. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So the next thing we're told in this passage of Mark about John the Baptist is that John the Baptist tells us what we must do to be prepared. He says it this way. He says, says he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If the Messianic Savior and Judge is coming, then we must confess and repent of our sins. The burden of John's preaching was repentance. Though this good news of the gospel is for all people, John particularly comes to the nation of Israel, God's covenant people. John came to announce that these very people had broken covenant with their God and were therefore under his judgment. Their only hope was to turn away from their sins and turn back to their God. When we are told that John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, it's implied that he did this first through the preaching of the law. In other words, he declared that we are all guilty before God for having broken his law. Jew and Gentile alike have broken God's law, and so our greatest need is to be forgiven for our sins. This Jesus is coming and now has come to save us from our sins, and we are saved through placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, the man with true saving faith will also be the man who repents of his sins. There is no saving faith without true repentance. Simply put, it is clear throughout the Bible that there is no salvation apart from repentance. Jesus was in fact the one who said it most plainly when twice in Luke 13 he declared, Repent or perish. And so the next thing that stands out in the ministry of John as recorded by Mark here is the widespread response to John's ministry. It says the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Obviously, all here does not literally mean all. All is being used to describe the vast numbers of people that turned out to see this humble yet bold preacher. What is key here is that a multitude of Jews were confessing their sins and being baptized. There's no record of Jews being baptized before John's requirement here of Jews being baptized. Up to this point, 
the Jews had only required that the unclean Gentile proselytes to be baptized by their own self-immersion. That was the requirement. They said, if you're a Gentile convert to Judaism, you must be baptized because you're unclean and this will make you clean. But what John is saying here is you Jews too are unclean and also need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now the final thing that this text tells us about John's ministry relates to our opening theme. Verses 7 through 8 show us that John is caught up in how great is the Messiah of whom he is the forerunner. So verses 7 and 8 says this, And this was his message, After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John emphasizes how much greater the coming Messiah is than him. John's interest is in pointing people not to himself, but in pointing them to the one who is coming after him. He's interested in promoting not his own glory, but in promoting the glory of the coming Christ. John highlights the superiority of the coming Messiah in these three ways. He says that Christ is more powerful than him. He says that he's unworthy to untie Christ's sandals. And he says that Christ will baptize not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist may seem powerful and influential in his ministry. After all, we're told the whole Judean countryside has come out to him. But John is in earnest to tell us that this Messiah is much more powerful than him. After me will come one more powerful than I. Jesus is, in fact, infinitely more powerful than John because he is God. When John claims to be the one who was to come to prepare the way for the Lord in fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3, The Lord in that Isaiah passage is Yahweh. In other words, he's declaring that Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant name for God. He's saying this Jesus is Yahweh. Nothing less. He is the God of the covenant. In Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus calls John the greatest among those born of women. But the greatest of men is less than nothing in comparison to the infinite, almighty, eternal Son of God. And you will see many Christian cults out there that will say that Jesus is is wonderful. They'll even call Him divine in some fashion, but He's something less than God, which is not what the revelation of the Scripture tells us, that Jesus is Yahweh. He is the eternal, almighty Son of God. In fact, Jesus is so much greater than the Baptist that John says that he is not worthy to stoop down and untie the Messiah's sandals. Now listen to this. A Hebrew slave was not even required to untie the thongs of his master's sandals. So to untie the thongs would make you lower than a slave. You've got to follow what I'm saying here. See, not even a slave unties the master's sandals. So to do so makes you lower than a slave. And yet John's saying, I'm not even worthy then of being lower than a slave. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Not even worthy of a slave. Not even worthy of being lower than a slave. I'm lower than even that. That's how great this Messiah is. This Son of God is. 
To untie his sandals would be a privilege because in order to untie his sandals, you need to be in his presence. And he, being the Holy One of Israel, we sinners are not even worthy to be in his presence. Remember that both in the tabernacle and the temple of God, no one was allowed in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where dwelt the ark that represented God's presence. In Hebrews 9-7, we're told, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people committed in ignorance. It is a tremendous act of grace that we are even allowed in his presence, let alone that we dwell with him for all eternity. And we receive this grace to enter into his presence only through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our behalf. He died for our sins and was raised again so that we who are united with him through placing our faith in him could have eternal life and through our Lord Jesus Christ we could declare him to be the Son of God and be united with him and therefore adopted as his children, sons of the living God. Finally, John says that this Jesus is greater than he is in the sense that while John baptizes merely with water, this coming Messiah does what John cannot do. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is the reality that baptism in water symbolizes. John baptizes in water, which symbolizes being cleansed. But Jesus baptizes us in the Holy Spirit, who is the person of the Godhead devoted to cleansing us, making us holy and blameless in his sight. See, he's called the Holy Spirit because, number one, he is holy. But number two, his mission is to make God's people holy. Christ has ushered in the age of the Spirit, in which the Holy Spirit is poured out on God's people. This coming age of the Holy Spirit being poured out on all believers was prophesied about in the Old Testament, especially in Joel 2, beginning in verse 28. In the beginning of the book of Acts, the risen Lord then tells his disciples that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is about to come, and they are to wait for this event. So in Acts 1.8, Jesus says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Then shortly thereafter, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's poured out, and the Apostle Peter declares that the day that Joel prophesied about he said it would come, and it has now come. So Acts 2, verses 16 through 18, he's quoting Joel. Peter says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He says, this is that. This is that which was spoken. And here's the prophecy. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And then Peter says in Acts 2.33, Exalted to the right hand of God, 
He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. The Holy Spirit poured out on God's church. Uh, Jesus Christ baptizing his people with the Holy Spirit. We then read throughout the book of Acts about the activity of the Holy Spirit in declaring and receiving the gospel. So in declaring the gospel, there's many examples, but famously, Acts 4.31 says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what they do, they went out and spoke the word of God boldly. Filled with the Spirit, they spoke the Word of God boldly. But the Holy Spirit is not just there to those speaking the Gospel. The Holy Spirit comes for those to receive the Gospel, to believe the Gospel, to be born of God through the preaching of the Word. So in Acts 10, 44, uh, Peter, this is the same Peter who's giving the instruction to Mark as he's writing this Gospel. Peter's preaching to the household of the Gentile uh, Cornelius. The Gentile centurion Cornelius in Acts 10.44 says, While Peter was still speaking these words. Now Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit as he speaks, but it says, The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. In being baptized with the Holy Spirit, we come under the Spirit's life-giving power. William Hendrickson spoke of some of the results of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. He says that, Our minds are enriched with unprecedented illumination. Our wills are strengthened like never before. And our hearts are flooded with warm affection to a previously unprecedented degree. So you see, as the Holy Spirit comes down upon us as God's people, our minds are enriched and and illuminated. Our wills are strengthened and our hearts are flooded with love for our God and His people. So the conclusion is this. We need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We first need to be born again by the Spirit. We need regeneration. And and if you have not been born again, that's your not only first need, that's your only need in life. There's one thing needful. To come to saving faith in Christ, which only comes about when you're raised from the dead, when you're born of God. Because no one will see or enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again, unless he's born of the Spirit. You can accomplish great things in this world. You can do a lot of good in this world. But if you are not born again and have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ himself guarantees it. But having been regenerated, we need to be daily filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to be empowered by God to do His will. We need to be filled with the Spirit that we would give our lives to the One who served us by giving His life as a ransom to many. We need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit that we would have the grace, the wisdom, and the power that we need first to be His witnesses, to be witnesses for Christ in this dark and depraved generation. But we need the grace, wisdom, and power of the Holy Spirit in order to persevere in faithfully following our Lord Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Gospel. The Gospel of Jesus our Savior. The Gospel of Jesus the Christ the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. 
Father, we were dead in transgressions and sins. We were your enemies. We deserved nothing but eternal destruction. But by your mercy and grace, you sent your one and only son into this world to die on the cross for our sins, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so our prayer is that we would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that you would baptize us with the Holy Spirit, that we would have power from on high to live a holy life and then to evangelize to our communities, to evangelize to the nations, that we would lead many sons to glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.